0: And welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. Our time machine today takes us to the mid-1980s and to the UK, where one particular horse, whilst not the prettiest, stunned the crowds again and again with repeated bouts of breathtaking acceleration. He was dancing brave. When we watch a horse race, we're ultimately seeing who can run the distance in the shortest and therefore quickest time possible. Fine. But when we analyse it closer, what really gets most people excited is watching a horse accelerate and overtake faster than the other competitors. It can send shivers down the spine when timed well, and more often than not, that was the effect that Dancing Brave had on the racecourse. He had a gear that others simply couldn't find, and it was electrifying. Yet, ironically, he will be remembered just as much for a race he didn't win as for the ones he did. It's fair to say that Dancing Brave would never win the gold medal for beauty. He was an ordinary size, had a plain head, was famously parrot-mouthed, and had rather imperfect forelegs. Bought by Prince Khalid Abdullah for $200,000, his principal trainer, Jeremy Tree, was given first dibs over all of Prince Khalid's new crop of yearlings. It was perhaps no surprise, therefore, that the underwhelming son of Lifar was passed over in favour of others, and went into training instead at the yard of Guy Harwood at Pulborough, near England's south coast. Quite soon, Harwood realised that Jeremy Tree had made a rare mistake, and the horse, now called Dancing Brave, began setting the gallops alight. Even so, Harwood didn't rush. He had an unwritten rule that a two-year-old horse shouldn't run until he or she was actually two years and three months old. And Dancing Brave had been a very late foal, the 11th of May, 1983. When he did appear in the eight furlong dorking stakes at Sandown, it was telling that he started odds-on against three opponents. Others had clearly seen his performances on the gallops. He duly obliged in easy fashion by three lengths and backed this up with a victory by a similar distance in the Soham House stakes at Newmarket. His jockey, veteran Greville Starkey, instantly recognised the class oozing underneath him, dismounting from his first race and announcing to his trainer, I've found my derby ride. On both occasions, albeit against slightly inferior cults, he demonstrated an eye-catching acceleration towards the end. Having never run a group race, it was impossible to class him at or even near the top of the end-of-season ratings. But the public weren't fooled, and made him winter favourite for the next year's 2000 guineas. At his reappearance at three, he took in a comfortable warm-up, albeit in unpleasant soft ground, at the traditional guineas trial at Newmarket's Stakes, making him a warmer favourite still. And on the day itself, he didn't disappoint. Despite still technically not having reached his actual third birthday, he burst clear with a glorious turn of foot to beat a class field decisively by three lengths. Second-placed Green Desert franked the form during the season, winning two of England's top sprints, the July Cup and the Haydock Sprint Cup, that summer. Inevitably, talk thereafter could only be of the Epsom Derby. The Braves' pedigree was ambiguous regarding stamina. Harwood was circumspect, having seen the incredible speed which his charge had shown. Conversely, the increasingly confident Starkey had no doubts. In the run-up to the race, he even stated that the Brave was bomb-proof. These were words that he would soon bitterly regret. On the day itself, all knew that to protect Dancing Brave's unknown stamina, Starkey would play the waiting game. What no one foresaw was how much he would overdo it. Perhaps over-imbued with confidence, the Colt was being held right back, when clearly being keen to move on. He also didn't seem to take the idiosyncratic Tattenham Hill and Epsom's other unique contours with much relish. From a truly impossible position at the back of the field, with just two furlongs left to run, Starkey finally decided to press go. The reaction was astonishing. Dancing Brave stormed past almost all the field with a sustained burst, covering that penultimate furlong in an inconceivable 10.3 seconds, thought to be the fastest single furlong ever covered in the Derby. Yet, it wasn't enough. Walter Swinburne had already set sail on the Aga Khan's handsome colt, Sharistani, and despite the Brave eating prodigiously into his lead, The post came two strides too soon. Dancing Brave had tasted unthinkable defeat, and the journalists' pens scorched the paper thereafter, with one accusation after another aimed at Starkey's perceived arrogance. The Daily Telegraph was lenient on him, claiming that Starkey lived through the original jockey's nightmare, putting most of the blame on the horse's lack of balance. Others were less forgiving accusing Starkey of a fatal misjudgment. Looking at it again, it remains very hard to be certain one way or the other, except that it is screamingly clear that the best horse didn't win. When the dust had settled, Dancing Brave was sent to test himself over ten furlongs against his elders in the Eclipse Stakes. Starkey made amends, with Dancing Brave annihilating top French filly triptych and a high-class field by four lengths. The next obvious step to reset the colt's journey to immortality was at the King George and Queen Elizabeth stakes, back over 12 furlongs at Ascot. It is only with the perennial benefit of hindsight that we are surprised that this colossus of the 1980s didn't start favourite. With the jury still out in some corners over whether he truly stayed 12 furlongs, and Sharastani having in the interim cruised to an eight-length success in the Irish derby, it was the latter who was thought most likely to win. Dancing Brave also had a new jockey, multiple UK champion Pat Edery, as Starkey was injured. The Brave beat Shadari and another top field comfortably, if not sensationally, with his Epsom conqueror running a sub-par race. A short August break followed, before Dancing Brave was brought back in the low-key September stakes at Goodwood nothing more than a facile ten-length win around Goodwood Racecourse, to tune him up for his true autumn target, the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. The only thing to note at Goodwood was that Edery was once again in the saddle, even though Starkey was now fit. It would stay that way for the rest of the Colt's career. Quietly, it seemed as though connections were still blaming Starkey for the Epsom failure, although none would say as much. Come early October, in the Paris sunshine, the lucky crowd was able to witness something truly special. The lineup for any arc is usually of the highest order, but few could remember the race dripping with such a profusion of talent as the 1986 iteration. Only Seabird's 1965 arc was mentioned in the same breath regarding strength in depth. France's main hope was Bering, a grandson of the 1965 arc hero. Unbeaten, with a course-record Prix du Jockey Club French derby under his belt, he posed a huge threat. The amazing and durable filly Triptique was there, as were the Prix Vermeil winner Derara, the German champion Akatenango, as well as sharistani Shadari and many more. Run at breakneck speed, the huge field swung around the final bend of Longchamp, with one of the aforementioned after the other, each taking a turn to briefly lead. For a moment, bearing looked to have it sewn up, but like a falcon swooping from the cliffs, dancing brave, the ugly duckling who ran with the imperiousness of a swan, overtook the entire field in another electric burst of speed, this time with no one beyond him at the finishing post. He was going away by nearly two lengths at the end, and broke the course record in the process. It had been a magnificent display against a raft of outstanding thoroughbreds running true to form and earned him the highest international rating since the European classification system had been introduced in 1977. But this was 1986. And with the recently established Breeders' Cup capturing the imagination of global racing as the de facto World Championships, it was felt that he needed to prove himself there too. As it transpired, it was a race too far, and the Brave ran the only lacklustre race of his illustrious career, coming a never-threatening fourth behind excellent US cult Manila, whom he nevertheless really should have beaten. Three decent reasons were given. First, he'd been on the go since April, and it was November. Very few horses could maintain form for even most of that period, and he was likely over the top. Second. He had lost considerable weight on the journey over and didn't look his best. More down to earth, he came back from the race with an eye injury, with Edery confirming what the cameras had picked up, that a clod of earth had struck the horse's eye hard during the race, meaning that he had had to run in considerable pain and with hazy vision. Gracefully retired to stud, Dancing Brave's life as a sire was complex. He initially seemed to have fertility problems, although this may have been from his contracting the rare Marys disease. The Japanese made Dalham Hall Stud an offer they couldn't refuse. But only then did the brave start producing top-class winners, including Epsom derby winner Commander-in-Chief and Italian derby winner White Muzzle. But his racing legacy was secure, and perhaps most succinctly summed up in Racehorses of 1986. He possessed an extraordinary range for a top horse combining outstanding qualities of speed and endurance. Had he been campaigned in the major summer and autumn events at a mile, or a mile and a quarter, he'd almost certainly have dominated his generation as peerlessly as he did at a mile and a half. There are precious few champions about whom that can be said. To find out more about this wonderful horse and other greats from the past, check out my book Punch a Hole in the Wind. Out now, and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and explore the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying, thank you for listening.